24 million Americans will not have access to healthy, affordable food today. Why? Because they live in food deserts. Glenn Ford is trying to change all that. I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. We were in the class of 1963. There were 18 of us, and we are now in our late 70s. With me are four of my classmates. First, we have Fred Easter, Jerry Secundi, George Jones, and John Woodford. And our guest is Glenn Ford, a black man with a plan to get healthy food to inner city and rural areas that lack it. I am calling from Chicago this uh, this morning. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you are into an expert on food deserts. Tell us about that. What are they actually? You know, it's an interesting thing, food deserts. I basically believe that food deserts are communities that, uh, that the, the large grocers have chosen to ignore. Um, the government defines a food desert as a community that, is, that does not have a grocery store inside of a mile and a half. Uh, that's a government requirement, but I, I think it's much deeper than that. Uh, I, I think that there are economics and a range of other things that are involved there that then lend themselves to, uh, to poor, what I'm going to call poor community economics, because as you know, regardless of community, people eat. So there is a need for the product. It's not like we decide that, okay, we live in a poor area, so let's go without food. So, uh, so there's a whole host of things that are underway, typically poor community economics in general, that then lends themselves to, uh, to food deserts. One of the students in the, in the alternative school that I ran told the principal at one point, he said, Mr. English, I can go out of my house and walk less than a block in any direction and buy a gun for $50, $100, $500, whatever I got but I got to walk over a mile to buy an apple. Yes. Wow. You know, and, and the sad part about it is, um, yes, the community would eat this food. So for the longest time, grocers didn't do a wonderful job of really fine tuning into the palates of giving communities. And so they wanted to uh, have sort of a uniform approach to all stores. And so they were not very community responsive. They weren't interacting. Uh, I contend that when you put a building of a, of a company in any area, but you don't reach out to the community in any way. You set yourself up to not understand that community. And so instead of speaking with them, you're looking at marketing reports. And, and by doing so, you really miss it. Uh, a classic example is here in Chicago, where they believe that people can't afford good food. And yet, if you sat in the parking lot of Whole Foods, you would actually see people from these communities walking out with Whole Food bags. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at some of the data as opposed to the perceptions, you'll find out that people in these poor communities have been paying more for food than people who live in prosperous ones. So there's a real uh, incongruity between what people say and what's the real reality of, uh, of our urban cities. Wait, wait, you're saying that who's, who was coming out with the Whole Foods bags? Well, people from the very communities that we claim can uh, afford that, that caliber of food wow. will drive further away to uh -huh. buy good food 
So mm-hmm. then the cost of acquisition of food is oh, higher. Oh. Uh, and the difficulty of uh, the difficulty of getting there uh, comes into play too. Yeah, I mean, so is it racism and economics or both or what's, what's your sense of that? You know, I don't know if I want to use the label racism, mm-hmm. but, uh, but there are corollaries uh, between it. And what I'm typically going to say is that there are perceptions of, of ethnic communities that are just wrong but yet we've managed to keep these perceptions in place for decades. Uh, and it continues then to, uh, to foster ill will. And in some cases, let's take Chicago, where there, where there is crime at a rate that should not exist, uh, that then leads into this narrative that continues to tell a pretty bad story and it doesn't create an environment where companies are wanting to spend millions of dollars of assets to be put in a hellhole. Uh, if you will. Now, if we go a little bit deeper into it, we'll find out that there are these pockets of poverty, but this poverty can be t- turned around. And a part of that turnaround is the acquisition of food. No mom with a young kid wants to live in an area that has a food desert and she can't find food for her babies. That's a basic. Uh, but we'll find, let's take Chicago again as an example the number one employer on the south side of Chicago doesn't employ anyone from the neighborhood for a few different reasons. It's the University of Chicago, as an example, which is the number one employer. Uh, and so poverty is going to manifest itself in some way, whether that's in crime, uh, whether that's in disinvestment, whether that's in a whole range of other issues. Uh, I believe, though, that if the community start capturing some of that food dollar and allowing it to cycle more, in those areas, that we've got an opportunity to create wealth, which is numero uno for something that all business opportunity has to do. Mm-hmm. So where have you done this before? I mean, have you done this and had success stories in other places? or? So the success story is still forming because no one has done this on a large enough scale to have the kind of an impact that uh, we all need. Uh, this is more than just the building of a grocery store. This is very few people, as an example, have the experience of trying to build an entire economy in an area that is short of it, right? In other words, that's going to take just all of your perceptions, that takes an understanding in economics, that takes, it takes a range of things, and it also uh, dictates that we must collaborate. Uh, so this is not where you go off and do your singular activity. Uh, this says, I've got to work with other businesses. I've got to attract them to go where I go. And we are underway in doing this in Duquesne, Pennsylvania, where we're building a 180,000 square foot aquaponics campus, uh, along with uh, the acquisition of a grocery store that's in that area, and then attracting data centers, fiber optic companies, and others to go into that same geography with us. So this is sort of one of these, to use a military analogy, where we want to bring all the armaments with us and to not keep setting ourselves up as orphans that sit out alone and expecting a big outcome. You mean you're going to grow the food right Yes, there? yes. Yeah, so inside of these aquaponics facilities, uh, there, there is any, any green leafy thing that you can imagine that you want to eat, we have the opportunity to grow it. And the other side of it is then raising fish because, again, I'm not a, uh, a veganism is wonderful, but I'd like a piece of protein here and there. And uh, 
Right. And so raising the fish, I think, are the two, uh, the two healthiest things that we can offer both ourselves and communities. Well, what so, kind of town is that? The, the town, what's it, Duquesne? Yeah, so Duquesne is historic, was, uh, was a historic steel mill city, if we go back years ago. Mm -hmm. And it is immediately connected to Pittsburgh. So, you know, that's one metropolis. Duquesne at one time had 35,000 people who lived in it. Uh, when the steel mills uh, died in that area, it's now down to 5,500 people. Uh, the median income is $20,400. And the, the median home price is $40,500. Uh, now, that is a profile that we chose. That's not, uh, this is not luck that we ended up there. The, the purpose is we want to prove this point on a grand scale, and it fits the profile of where we want to work. It is uh, it's predominantly African-American to the 60 percentile, uh, but it has other nationalities there as well. And uh, we have really great uh, community relationships, both with a uh, mayor there who happens to be a young African-American woman, uh, as well as with the bank, uh, the large bank, the largest bank system in that, in that state, which is PNC Bank of, of Pittsburgh, who is agreeing to uh, invest in us as well, uh, along with some private equity investors, which then make that possible. So we're doing this at a pretty large scale. Part of uh, the fear sometimes of going in areas is that you don't ask for enough money. You are so afraid, right? But you, you go in, you don't ask for enough money, and then you are expected to try to, to uh, perform miracles. In this particular case, we asked for the right amount of money, secured it, and now are going in in force. Wow. So this is the pilot? Yeah. Yeah. This, this is the, you know, not only the pilot, but this is the scaled version of it, right? So we acquired 15 acres. Uh, we have an option on another 10. And then that option of those other 10 properties, our goal is to then get other food companies to come along with us. Mm -hmm. We focus on the production side of food as opposed to the consumer side of it. All right? you, you don't build a whole lot by just being a consumer. Uh, when you are at the production stage, however, and people are then buying products and that wealth gets a chance to sit and cycle in that community, then you, you're capable of turning it around. So I use a combination of a background in economics, a combination of a background as a investment banker, uh, as well as my stint at uh, Baxter Healthcare, which is on the health side, and then lastly at PepsiCo, uh, where I was a senior executive at the Pepsis. You know, probably like everyone else that's uh, African-American and have had success in your background, uh, you look at what's going on in the old neighborhoods and you say to yourself, why isn't someone doing something? Uh, why isn't, you know, we can come up with a hundred reasons that someone else should be doing something. And so when I found myself bitching uh, about it every day, um, I recognized that, well, they aren't doing anything because guys like you aren't doing anything. So think about it. We, we get through the struggle as a young African-American man. We go away to schools where we spend a lot of money uh, to, uh, to garner these uh, educations. You come out, you get a corporate job. And it, the first thing that corporate job does is it moves you away from the community that really needs your help the most. And you try for years to figure out how might I contribute by somehow uh, going back, uh, and so the first thing that you think about is mentors. Well, you know what? Uh, the young people are tired of us talking to them. Come join us. You want to you have an impact? Come join us. 
And so I wasn't uh, wise enough to figure out how to keep a high paying job and join them at the same time. And so ultimately you have to jump over the cliff. And the spiritual basis of all of that is uh, faith isn't faith until you have to put it to work. Right, right. What's, the, what's your timeline in terms of time frame or like well, t- 10 we, years from now, uh, where do you want to be? Yeah, so the hardest part about uh, this, Kent, was uh, finding capital, right? There are plenty of great ideas out there. And fortunately, we have found both a private equity group, a large bank, uh, and some uh, smaller private private equity investors who are willing to, uh, to be a part of this with us. And so we are through the permitting stage now in Duquesne, Pennsylvania, which is, believe me, a handful. The architects are finishing up the final pieces prior to going into uh, construction. We close on the financial documents at that particular facility in, uh, in August. And so we, we start turning over dirt and building things and going forward. Now, we did something a little different. So I like to say that when you're at the table begging, uh, don't ask for a snack. Uh, go, for a, you know, go for a full meal. So we're not only going to do it in Duquesne, but we're going to do it in Erie, Pennsylvania. We're going to do it in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Uh, I am here in Chicago because we're looking at University Park uh, here. So what I told the investors is that I needed five of them. Uh, And then from five of them, we can generate enough internal cash to keep funding this forward. And right at that point that we don't need cash, we'll probably be offered more of it. And so we'll take that, we'll keep building the, the team out so that we can do it around the country. But I look at these food desert communities as little Mecca opportunities, and we're going after it. But I, I may have missed it when you went through your litany, but are any of the major grocery chains involved in this, Kroger or Ralph's or Bonds? Or- uh, so I have a budding relationship now with Kroger. Uh, which, as you know, is the largest uh, grocery store chain in the country. I have a relationship with Giant Eagle in Pennsylvania. They basically control the Pennsylvania market. And so, uh, indeed, uh, and also Super Value, which is now called Unity here in Minnesota or in Minnesota. And so, yeah, so grocers are very interested, but we also target the wholesale industry. So the U.S. roughly spends $1.7 million in food. All right, uh, Americans have big appetite, right? 1.7 million. And up until COVID hit, about 50% of that was uh, in the wholesale trade and another 50% were in groceries. So we call on about 14 different market segments, uh, you know, to do that. But the real big home runs are the wholesale food trade and grocery. Climate change is changing, how food is secured. And by us positioning this to be both local, we pick up freshness, but we also then pick up the support of communities. These, uh, these inner city areas need, and I keep referring to inner cities, but this is also true for smaller towns and rural areas too. So I, I, I wanna to speak to that. We do, we're interested in both, but obviously my heart and where I wanna see impact ASAP is in, is in our urban environment and specifically Chicago, which is, which is, uh, is, is in really bad shape in terms of job creation. And I, 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 no one has really tried to solve poverty by throwing lots of jobs at it. You know, we, we try to get into people's heads to change their value system, but it's pretty hard to hold a value when you're hungry and it's pretty hard to hold a value when you can't uh, support yourself. So I believe that you have to attack it uh, 
you know, we all learn, you know, you guys are, are Harvard grads. We, we understand about complexity and all of us would like a simple, we'd like a simple approach to things, but sometimes things just aren't simple and you have to embrace the complexity and go forward, which is why I, you know, we're bringing on board a lot of smart people and, 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 and engaging uh, that complexity. But yeah, we have support from wholesalers already and they have support from the grocers. And so essentially, I mean, you're saying, I guess, no, nobody really eats junk food by choice in a way. You, you know, I, I like to say that people eat whatever is convenient. So you could be, a, you know, you could, you could be the most vegan of a vegan um, and you could have sworn off sugar and a whole range of other things. But if I take you away to a conference and I don't make your food available to you, and one day in the middle of that meeting that you've been sitting in all morning, if I took some uh, freshly baked chocolate chip cookies and put them on that table, I'll break down your willpower in less than an hour. You'll be eating as many cookies as everyone else. Uh, so, so yeah, if, if good food is available, people will eat good. Um, and if junk food's available and uh, you've got a Popeye's chicken or a KFC somewhere handy, people are going to eat it. Well, Glenn, this is a fascinating approach. That instead of trying to just drop a grocery store in the middle of a, uh, of a struggling area, you've got to have that economic base, as you said. You yes. have to have the people that have the jobs that are able to spend the money to go to the grocery stores. And you're looking at basically soup to nuts, the entire chain of the food process. So, Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is there is really a ch chance for you to put a whole economy in an area as opposed to just your function. So as an example, if we were just to take our building and plop our building down um, and then be completely internally focused, right? Let's just say we've got our wholesale relationship and we're producing, uh, they bring their truck in, we fill that truck up, it goes out, and we were just focused on our, on, on our bottom line. Uh, then the impact that you could have with communities is simply the number of jobs that you add to it. Sometimes what people are looking for are resources of all types. It's not necessarily saying your checkbook. It's just saying resources. Hey, I've got this problem and I need to solve it. Where can I go? Well, our experiences from our corporate time and others, um, it, it gives us a pretty good Rolodex. Sometimes all that you really need to do is to hear that person out, make a few phone calls, connect the right dots, and now they've got, uh, they've got help. But if you were just one of the poor folks that sit inside of Duquesne or you pick the community with no resources, uh, you don't know who to call. And so you sit in your frustration and your disappointment. And, uh, and then you don't get to the other side of where it is that you need to be. I, I view the roller dexes of everyone who works for us to be a corporate asset. And that will apply that where it's needed to help people in these communities. Glenn, how did you pick Duquesne? We certainly have many, many uh, cities, towns uh, in the United States that would meet the criteria. Why Duquesne? Good question. Uh, one of the things that I found through visiting uh, over 60 cities, by the way, is that you've got to find the right kind of substrate before you plant a seed. Everyone will acknowledge that they are interested. The challenge is, are they willing to do anything about it? And are they willing to uh, give TIF dollars, right, to make the burden of moving to that area uh, less? Are they willing to uh, do incentives. And, and, and I started judging things like if all of a sudden uh, we needed a curb or sewer fixed, which of those cities do I think would roll up their sleeves and then help me out? 
Yeah. Um, so, so in other words, I, I'm recruiting resources at all times. That is a that's a part of the persistence that I that I have as a person. And so, I would literally sit across from their economic development teams or their mayors or whoever else. And all along, while we're having conversation, I'm making the assessment on whether or not they would be willing to help me if we ran into any kind of a jam. And then I force rank them. And in Pittsburgh, we started another, help start another organization called food21.org, which would be really interesting to, for you to go take a look at. And we did an assessment of all the food producers that are in those areas. And we found Pennsylvania to be importing about 90% of the food that they eat. And so that became a wow. pretty, yeah, believe it or not, it, it, is, it yeah. is that severe. And so we uh, reached out to the governor, reached out to the governor's team and a range of other people and got really good support uh, for our efforts. Plus we knew, uh, we, we knew of our, our private equity people and others there, but, uh, but that was one of the first reasons. But simultaneously, uh, then also reaching out to uh, St. Louis and reaching out to the other areas that I mentioned. You know, Glenn, I know we all live in a bubble, and I certainly live in a bubble. Knowing that you were coming on, I kind of did a little survey as to grocery stores near me, and within two yeah. miles, I have eight full grocery stores and yeah. Trader Joe's. Yeah. So. You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, right? Because uh, it, now let's just talk about being data-driven, right? So uh, most grocers chase a, like a golden median income level of $62,000, let's say. Uh, so ideally where they want to be positioned is at that 62,000 area and then they chase it, but then they all chase it. So you can have an inner city area where the median income is 45,000, but there's no grocer there, or you can go to the area that everyone else goes and there's eight grocers in, in, in two miles. So if you were solely going by the data, you would be all over food deserts, but that's not the reality. And, and so there is a whole lot more learning inside of the data that we need people to do. But if you, all of you guys are old enough to uh, remember when the old saying was that no one got fired by, uh, no one ever got fired by buying an IBM computer, yeah. right? Uh, and it's that same way, no one's gonna fire you from, uh, from putting your grocery store in a prosperous area, whether you're gonna be successful or not. But, uh, but I, I, I turn that over and I, I basically say, if we go into those communities of need and help build it out, that we will be anchored there for decades. And I'm looking for a decades long attachment to what we're doing. So thanks to Glenn Ford and keep this name in mind, In City Farms. That is it for this edition of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. Join us next time, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.